All right. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jordan Harris, and we are set to record the very first episode of the Fraud Boxer podcast. This is something that I've been kind of thinking about for a little while, and uh, I think it's time to execute on this idea. It's uh, it's a lot of fun to talk to a lot of people in the industries, and I make a lot of phone calls, and I talk to a lot of people. Um, and sometimes from those those conversations come some, some really, really good ideas. And I think it's time that we start uh, exploring those ideas in a more public forum. Uh, and sharing those ideas that come from those calls. So uh, I am joined today by Mr. Alexander Hall of Dispute Defense Consulting. And it's very exciting to have you on my very, very, very first episode. So how are you doing today? Dude, it's a great day. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be a part of this, man. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's get started and dive right in, waste no time, you know, and let's have a conversation. So uh, you and I, we met uh about a year ago now, we were at a dinner at a very nice restaurant. I believe it was two Michelin stars. It was called Picasso, and it was in Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, I was talking about Shirtless Wednesdays. What do you remember about that evening? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely remember Shirtless Wednesdays for sure. Hey, you uh, know. <laughs> it was great. It was great to, to you know be a part of the MRC family. It was great. We went out with a the vendor. Um, they treated us. Man, it was just great to see the camaraderie and the 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 family that's behind all the data you know that we deal with so it was, it was really eye-opening the whole event was but especially that dinner we had great conversations a lot of fun yeah. i think that that's what makes like the fraud industry different like i've i've been in other industries before this is my third iteration of i'm like a caterpillar uh i keep i keep just having a rebirth but this is like the third iteration but the fraud industry is unique that like we all know each other um and we all come from different companies and we all move around a lot of companies, but we have good relationships with each other in the industry. And we have good relationships with our vendors, even if we don't use their product or we cycle through other products, we maintain those relationships. And, and it's, it's the, the tried and true, like you never know where anybody's going to wind up. So, so don't burn a bridge is really like relevant in our industry. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's great. Absolutely. So, so you have an interesting background, how you got into this industry um, and you, you, you're newer on the scene, but you know, a lot of people are, especially during the pandemic and everything, but you came in in a different way. A lot of us come in from customer service angles or a necessity at a company, like a, a e-commerce company set up a, a website and they didn't think about fraud because nobody ever does, but you came in a little different. Let's, let's hear about that. Yeah. So uh, like you, I, I've had a career shift. I'm my own kind of a caterpillar. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I was a former fraudster. I operated for 10 years. Uh, when I think back and I quantify the kind of uh, damage that I did, um, the baseline was around 8 million and it could have been anywhere up from there. Uh, everything from stealing houses, taking over houses, I should say, uh, identity theft, identity fraud, payment fraud, uh, policy exploits, ATOs, all of this was commonplace in my operation back then. Um, and then, yeah, the shift came whenever my daughter came into this world, when it finally clicked that, you know, I was leading a, a lifestyle that was not conducive to a perfect young angel, the, my little baby, I decided I need to utilize my skill set. And of course, the idea of uh, catch me if you can came into play. I thought about Mr. Frank. Oh, yes. now. And um, I, I started just writing posts. I, I made a professional account on LinkedIn where I had never been before and started making posts eventually carice uh i reached out to carice she was gracious enough to feature me on her on the fraudology podcast and it's all been downhill from there it's been <laughs> awesome yeah and as i do want to mention that like uh 
like there, there's a, it's a whole story um, and it's a really in-depth story and it's a really great story. So if anybody wants to hear that story, I believe you have two episodes on fraudology. Um, the first one, you really go into your, your story. I think the second one is more like uh, more relevant for like stuff that's happening now. They're both excellent episodes. So anybody that really wants to hear your whole background story, please head over to Carissa's fraudology podcast. Take a listen there too for that. Um, one of the things, you know, let's talk about a couple of things that you did talk about on there um, and not to, to throw everybody off, you know, and reference something like that there's not source material, but you had, had done these things called profiles and you'd set up these things called profiles. Now, if you could kind of give my, my audience a background on what profiles are and then what you did with them, how they worked, um, all the fun stuff, because I have questions. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I will mention that one thing that would, that I struggled with when I came over to this side of the fence was learning the terminology of professionals and fraud prevention and what they call the things that we would do over there or the things that I was doing. Cause I was operating by myself. So I came up with my own names. One thing that, that, that I didn't come up with was profiles or fulls with a Z fulls. Uh, and, and essentially, uh, in its most basic form, it's a collection of PII data, right? So when we get this collection of data however you attain it. Typically, I would go straight to the source. So I would get it from people that were working with uh, credit applications, in-house financing. It might be lease agreements. It might be mortgage agreements. It might be any of these places. If someone was to be compromised, they could get me uh, relatively full sets of information that might have banking information, all that stuff. But at least it had social security number, um, shipping address, billing address, things like that. Once you get this set of information, once the fraudster gets it, um, there's two there's two, there's a fork of, of, of action that you need to take or that they need to take in order to flesh it out. And I go into this into my round, in my round table, but um, superficial information is going to be like your, your email address, your phone number, your uh, social media accounts, things like that. You might the easy to- stuff, like the stuff that's like, like pretty out there, you know, have I been pwned all that stuff that's like available there, that sort of thing. Exactly. Things that you just go sign up for. And, and it, now it's somewhere in this amalgam of, of data, right? Um, so you sign up for those and now you have superficial information, which kind of leverages what you can, what a fraudster can do in order to manipulate credit information. So in order to manipulate credit information, we would go in and when I was developing this process, I looked at all of the different data sources that were uh, represented on uh, on credit reports, right? So that's going to be cell phone companies, it's going to be lease agreements, it's going to mm. be, you know, whatever bank accounts. It'll so be you know who they have accounts with, like who they have real accounts with. Yes. And then what I would do is I would establish accounts. So if you were to cross reference two credit reports, you would see that both will say, two cell phone companies are both reporting to the credit bureaus and that information lands on the credit report. Well, in my head back then I decided, well, if this person has a, we won't say names, but if it has cell phone service provider A, right? Well, I'll start an account with cell phone provider or cell phone service provider B because eventually it'll get linked over to the credit report. And now that's a phone number that I access. And now if I wanted to push forward and get a, um, and get a credit line established or go get a, a credit card or, or go do some in-house financing, um, that information would be relevant. It would be, re- it would be on the credit report. So it'd be seen as reliable. It'd be something that's verified. So hmm. able to, the first step is to assign um, superficial information, emails, phone numbers, spam stuff, social media accounts, whatever it might be, uh, forums too. Uh, the second step would be to uh, manipulate the credit report. And that would be by going to these data sources and establishing new accounts. And then third, 
um, and I think you had mentioned this question about about how is it leveraged and how how long it would last. Yes. Right? So the third step in the process is to go to these. Back then, it was things like uh, well, I won't name them, but these credit freezing places, right? So if the fraudster freezes the credit after uh -huh. manipulating it, what's to stop them from running it dry, right? Just drain the lake, so to speak. Um, there's a lot of caveats, there's a lot of twists and turns, but that's the overarching story. So you have manipulate the superficial, manipulate the credit report, freeze the credit, drain. So you would freeze problem. it on your side because like, like mine, mine's frozen right now. As it sits, like I just do it because, you know, I work in this industry and I don't want to do it. I, I have a story that I'll tell you offline about uh, some nightmares that that caused in the last three weeks of my life. Uh, but I freeze it. So you would freeze it. So then they basically couldn't access any of the new information on there. Now I still could see it like from the ones that aren't real bureaus, you know, like the, the credit karmas and stuff. I could see those accounts of post eventually, but I, again, working in this industry, watch those things. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, and like, I, I mean, how I even got into this industry was people when I worked for the world's largest movie streaming company, um, would <laughs> have these accounts that were set up and be like, Hey, for the last eight months, I've been getting this bill. What is this? And it, it was such a, an example. Like for me, I watch all of my finances diligently. Like that's why I work. That's what I do. It's how I make, like how I eat. Um, and some people don't <laughs> like, some people just, don't care. And like, we always had the thing at that company that was like, I understand you can miss something one month, but if you miss it several months, like you need to do a better job. Like I have a hard enough time watching my own bank account. I can't watch yours too. Right, <laughs> you know, it was right. our, it was our line. We actually used to say that to the customers, but uh, yeah, that was a different time back then. <laughs> Ruthless. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, I guess like, that's really interesting to me that you go and freeze that. So once you had a stat, like how long would it take you to establish like a profile that was robust enough to use? So if I had to estimate, I would say that you would see things represented on the credit report uh, 30 to 60 days in. Depends on when you start work, or uh, 30 to 60 to 90 days in is when you would see it uh, re reported on the credit report. Um, and it just depends on when the fraudster starts operating, if they have accounts that they can reassign. For example, say that you have a bank account that you can give to somebody else or make an authorized user or sign them up or give them a secondary card or, or any of these types of things um, or create prepaid accounts, things like that. And when you start building up these profiles, if you do it really quick, you can see results in 60 days. You can see the credit report being adjusted in, in 60 days. Um, the trouble with that is in order to get the credit report, you have to build the profile with all that superficial information that already exists so that you can answer security questions. So among the whole process, that's the hardest part is getting the initial credit report from somewhere somehow, Yeah, uh, answering those, those uh, security challenges. So after you had a profile and you established it and you're using it, how long could you use it? Cause you, I'm assuming you have to do a whole bunch at once. Like you, you want to have multiples running at any given time because there eventually it's, the luck's going to run out. It's going to expire. Then you got to move on. Then you're, then you take on your new identity basically. But how long, like how long would they last? Like typically. If I had to estimate, I would say everything was, was done between the nine month to 12 month spectrum. Now that's, that oh, wow. seems like a long time, but there's no action. There's no direct derogatory action being given for the first three months to six months. So you're only okay. working it. Um, and then, like I said, you, you get the value out of it and, and take off. So I don't personally recall ever having a profile be active for up to a year. 
Mm. But I don't remember any profiles that were that I got to that final stage and were taken out of my access prior. Because you would you dump them before it was it was too late, right? You just it's gone now. Like you could probably feel like, or would you just would you would there be signs, or would you just say, okay, it's probably just time to get out. So one thing that sets me apart from when I was operating from other people is I didn't go big. I didn't go big, right? I would do a big thing. And I know I'm talking about this huge, <laughs> this huge process sounds like a big deal, but I didn't go and try and get $200,000 cars or, or, you know, million dollar houses or anything like that. I didn't go after this type of stuff. Yeah. I didn't want to be flashy. You go and you read these reports. You have these people who have these, these, uh, I mean, I don't know. You hear about these operations yeah. and they're just begging to be busted. I see all like the movies too, where they're like, oh, we just stole $130 million. Don't go buy something nice. And then the next thing they got a McLaren and like a new motorcycle that they can't even ride. I mean, that's right. movies and everything. But I mean, I think a great example too is like the, the, the PPP loans where they were buying McLarens and Ferraris and then just putting with their house. And they're like, I feel like you didn't even have a hundred thousand dollar business. Like what's going on here? Right. So just a lot of craziness in there, but that's, that's really interesting to me. The uh, like the like the time. So just thinking about that too, and this is just I mean completely going off cuff here. Like what we uh, what we're supposed to do with this podcast, I guess, is you know we use tools on on the fraud prevention side, automated tools to to prevent these sort of things. I'm assuming that you had to use some sort of automated tool or something to help with like the social engineering on that side. And you don't have to tell me what they are or any of that. I know like that's a whole different thing, but like, was there tools that were like being made on the other side? You did it all by hand? Everything <laughs> I did was by hand, but that's also, so that's another thing because I wasn't doing these big flashy things. I mean, I was buying food. I was getting access to, to different things. I could go buy whatever I wanted, but it's not like I was buying Lamborghinis and Ferraris. I just did anything that I wanted against any company that I encountered. And um, I mean, that's how I operated for so long without getting busted. I, yeah. I never got busted for fraud. That's crazy. So uh, one of the other things that you you also mentioned on, on Carissa's podcast, which again, everybody go listen to that so you can hear what we're talking about, um, is the the education levels of, of fraudsters. I thought that was really, really cool. Um, could you give a background on that too? And, and just give me a rundown of that because I thought that that was really interesting and I still think about that, <laughs> actually. So what I've found is that fraudsters are typically just inherently intellectual, right? And they're going to have a problem with authority. So in regards to education and, and, and typical like intelligence of fraudsters, you know, it does take a particular mind in order to be the person who creates and, and authors these new methods, of course, right? We're finding loopholes where, where these aren't published things. You can't go read a book and find out, hey, here's, here's how you get through these defenses. Um, well, you can, but the intellectual fraudsters that author the method, methods are the ones writing those little pieces of paper that are mm -hmm. available on the dark web. I've seen them. <laughs> yeah. Seen a lot and, of them. <laughs> and you have these little rebellious 13 year olds nowadays turning their, their allowance into, into Bitcoin and, and buying cards on the dark web and turning around and, and crossing their fingers at a checkout form. Yay. I'm a big boy fraudster. Uh, I don't want to make it sound like these people are, are great, good people. Cause of course they're, I mean, I was scum. There's no doubt about it, but it does take a particular mind in order to put these things together and discern mm -hmm. where these holes are. So. Yeah. I thought it was just like a, and also like you said, like these, like the elementary school, the middle school, the high school, the college, you know, and then, then you got the master's degree and all that. And I thought that was really cool too, because I think like, like you had mentioned over there too, that the, 
like elementary school is like picking up a card that you find on the ground, you know, and then trying to just go buy gas with it or buy a pack of gum, buy some smoke, you know, and then all the way up to like where, where your style is, where you're creating full synthetic identities that are real working thing. Like you could go buy a McLaren if you really wanted to with that identity. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. The different levels there too. Um, so well, yeah, you really did your research. Oh, you know, like, I, I, I'm not just calling people up willy nilly to have them on this thing. You know, I, I have a reputation that is a little willy nilly, but at the same time, you know, uh, yeah, I do. I, 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 I take an interest in in people that are interesting. And I think that you are an interesting individual in this space. You know, like there's there's a lot of us There's getting to be a lot more of us now in the pandemic. And we can talk about that a little later when we go to the trends part. Um, but there are people that stand out. And I think that obviously people that are, are fraudsters gone, gone good will stand out significantly in the industry, you know, especially when, when we're, we're having stories and doing keynotes and things like that, that we're listening to. Um, I think that there, there is like, in my opinion, there's two streets that you could go down when you have that background and then you cross over into legitimacy. There's, you could be a keynote speaker, um, fly around conference to conference, stand up on stage, do your thing, um, do webinars, you know, and that's how you make your living, you know, is, you, is your talking about your past or talking about your experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I don't I want everybody to think that like, that's, that's great. You know, we have like Frank Abagnale. I mean, his story's kind of changed recently in the last couple of years, but like he, he's done that. Um, a lot of, a lot of people need that. And a lot of people like those stories. I like to hear those stories when I read like management books and, and things like that. I like to hear the case studies more than I like to hear like the, the, how to do the actual work. I'm not going to lie. But there's also another way that, that can be done is where you turn it into a longer business, whether that be starting out with helping law enforcement or whatever it may be, talking about how you used to do, or helping us on this side find our own holes in our own systems and our own approaches. And I think that it's, it's we'll get into the whole how you're doing it and, and what your approach is, but it's the same type of thing. It's like, you know, we are in this industry and we're close to this. So we see our own set of problems every day, but our own set of problems might not be where the weakness is. And if there's a weakness, somebody's going to find it. And I think that that's really a, a, a different way when you have somebody come in from the side and, and from the outside and look in and see your approach and see and ask the questions. Well, what about this? What about this? Why are you doing this this way? Same thing with like, like when fraud product people are, are being hired, it's more useful to have people that come from the fraud industry than outside because they might not make the product that we need as fraudsters unless we're there to have some input. So with, with you, you chose to go the consulting path and help us out. So let's talk about that and how you choose that, how you started, the background of it, you know, the whole thing, <laughs> the whole enchilada. The whole enchilada. I like so, enchiladas. <laughs> uh, so I've been doing it for two years now, or uh, two years and six months now, um, or two years and four months. Uh, the thing is, is when I first came over here, I didn't know where I fit, right? And as you know, fraud prevention is massive, and it only grows every day because, you know, uh, a compartmentalized approach taking into consideration fraud prevention uh it just has to grow because fraudsters are attacking every part of the, the operation. So I had no idea how big fraud prevention was when I first came over. So I had no idea where I would fit. The only guiding pillar that I could see off in the distance was Mr. Uh, Frank Abagnale, as you mentioned. And then I quickly learned about Brett Johnson. And then I learned about there that there are several other uh, cyber criminals who have gone, gone good. Um, Pablos is one that I want to throw out. He's, he's, uh, he was amazing keynote at MRC. Um, and everyone does have their unique approach and everyone mm -hmm. does what fits for them and everything's great. I, uh, 
came over here and thought that if I said, Hey, I'm Mr. Former fraudster guy, it would be easy to just walk in anywhere and start spewing at an audience and get paid <laughs> for it. Um, and the truth is, uh, it did happen to an extent, but I realized I'd rather my value be measurable. I'd rather be able to drive KPI or ROIs and, and have KPIs about my performance. I want to know what kind of, kind of an effect I'm having on an operation so that I can measure it and, and, and say, I did a good job this way. It's not about being entertaining or insightful with pretty words being spoken. It's about being powerful and, and my ability to perform and, and all of that. So anyway, um, dispute defense took on many iterations. I, I had no direction when I first started. And then when, when I spoke with Carice, uh, and she had me on her, her podcast that led to a lot of connections. A lot of people asked me if I could do different kinds of work. And that's when it all started as a consultant was with, um, working with service providers, just like you said, um, coming in, poking holes in sandboxed environments, you know, before, so say vendor a is creating this or has this product. And I would come in and ask them probing questions. Cause now I have access to the back end. I don't have to put through <laughs> 20 or 30 horrible transactions to try and figure out what works. I could just ask questions. We can create sandboxed environments. We can see how their automation would respond to my tactics. And like I said, I was never busted and I operated for a long time. If, uh, if you can beat me, um, you're doing a good job. I'll say that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there started go. there and, and, and now I've worked with many of the leading vendors in our space. It's just been beautiful. Uh, again, the camaraderie, camaraderie, <laughs> the family that's yeah there we go that's what i do i'm like i'm typing so much i'm like i, I don't understand this word uh let me delete that and just change it to like the most simple word it's like porky <laughs> the pig <laughs> um so yeah um it was great and now i'm focusing on getting my my uh my boots dirty getting getting into the trenches and working with merchants directly you know to challenge their current uh you know their current offer or their current strategy and and get them going. Make sure that everyone's protected from the ground up. It's, been a, it's definitely been a journey. Yeah, and uh, I would say, like you know, MRC obviously is our is our big organization that we all are a part of, um, and we we like very much. Thank you, Julie. Uh, <laughs> MRC is great. It brought a lot of us together. It's a lot of how we we got our first start. Um, an exposure to what we were doing. Is it the right way to do it? Is it the wrong way to do it? And um, yeah, you you caught into the MRC uh, and that that helped you out quite a bit, right? Like, you, can you talk about that a little bit and just what the value that that organization? I mean, I know there's CNP and there's like NRF and all those conferences that just happened and everything. Like, there's value of it, but MRC is like that's like our our central hub. <laughs> MRC was amazing. That I mean, just hands down. I and I don't. Uh... There's no way to, to lessen it. Maybe, it was, I mean, it could have been a sentimental thing because here I am, you know, being a good guy and, and living the right life. And, and I'm being invited to this conference where, you know, merchants and, and service providers are getting together. There's the education studies that happen. And mm -hmm. that's actually one of my biggest clients came through listening, sitting in on one of these, um, on one of these sessions, listening to what they had to say and making an introduction. And the, the, the collaborations that came afterwards were just huge. I mean, it took me across the country all the way to Florida. It was amazing. And uh, I have MRC to thank for that. And, and again, Julie, Tracy, 
thank you guys so much. <laughs> you guys are you guys rock. This is turning into a shout out podcast. That's you know? it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and you you were you were kind of mentioning uh, kind of offline before we started. You know, like how your your first big thing was like you had a, a happy hour that had your name on it and everything. So that was so nuts yeah like to see a flyer with your name on it saying you know come to the happy hour and or have a happy hour with alexander hall like oh my gosh yeah it was crazy so let's talk about kind of some of the milestones that you've had you know like you mentioned just now that you like you went to florida let's uh let's get maybe chronological if you can even remember but like is that two two years and four months you know you're gonna hit you're gonna hit 30 before you even realize it but like that's I mean, already going to Florida and everything to do stuff like that's pretty crazy. Let's 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 hear some of the milestones that you hit. So, uh, man, there was a point in time where it felt like every week I was I was having new milestones in a career. I remember posting that I feel like I took off from the finish line and then I feel like I passed the quarter mile and then I, you know, half mile mile. But I, I just keep feeling like I revert back to the to the starting line because there's such my, my aspirations get so much bigger. But anyway. Um, the things that contributed were, uh, I mean, I was featured in two keynotes. I had two keynotes in the digital sessions, the, the digital session for uh, card, not present, which I respect DJ and Mick and all the work yeah. that they do. Um, they're so consistent and it's, it's just uh, an honor to be, you know, a keynote speaker talking about my life and, and offering strategy items off of that. That was just huge. Um, in addition to that, I've co-paneled uh, with some of the most talented people uh, in our industry. Um, I'm still waiting to co-panel with you. Hey, you know that. So I'm anyway. available. I'm available <laughs> all the time. <laughs> uh, co-paneling with these different vendors across our space was just huge because, you know, we, we touch on so many different aspects of, of merchant operations, different industries, and to be seen as a billable person who just sits <laughs> here and talks, you know, I just think that was so crazy. Um, I think I reflect back on my operations and I realize that, you know, my, my insight and my strategy development items have been affected or have affected, I don't know, billions of dollars, right? Yeah. I mean, billions of dollars of operate of money flowing out in the world um, have been affected by, by either my strategy or indirectly, maybe my insight. I mean, we can't really measure that, but, but yeah. When you think about these big companies doing as much as they do, and you realize that you've put a little piece of insight into their operation, well, now it goes through that funnel, and now you're you're affecting billions of dollars. So it's just crazy. Um, and then, like you said, going coast to coast. I live in Vegas, and for a vendor to fly me out to the other coast, the East Coast, and to live in a hotel for a few days and talk to their sales executive team about strategies, it's just if I reflect back on where I was six years ago, right before my daughter was born. And I think about the things that I've accomplished in two years. Uh, it's, it's extremely touching. And, and I'm, and I mean, I'm proud. I'm, I'm so happy to be where I am and all you great people. It's so <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I think that you bring a, a, a wealth of knowledge that, that we need in the industry. Like I was saying earlier, like we're so close to, all of the things that we do on our day to day, you know, and it, it, especially like folks that don't like, um, don't get to go to the conferences as much or don't, or stay at a, a same job for a really long time. There's nothing wrong with that, but you, you get really in like your groove in, in you and you, you just keep doing your own thing all the time. And I think that, that having folks like, like you that come in and, disrupt isn't the right word but you know it's the it's the tech word that we all have to do and disrupt our thinking 
in a, in a positive way and help us look at more. I think that there's, there's this interesting shift that's happening. And uh, we've, I've talked about it on a couple of panels that I've done where we're, fraud is starting to blend into cybersecurity more. It used to be, they were kind of separate things, you know, login was done by the, the, the security team. You know, we were just stay in our checkout lane all day long, but as these profiles and these identities come into play, you know, there's more crossover from the fraud side where we are now having to look at the login information, the account create, the, the, the customer journey on your site holistically, that's leading us more into a, um, a cybersecurity part of our of our lives. I think Elon Musk, you know, is is all the craziness that he's been doing about bots has been a net positive because it's caused awareness about bots um, that that people might have not thought about. And anybody that's listening to this right now and you don't think you have bots on your site, you do. Like no matter what, you do. So get your bots straight because there's 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 something coming there. And I mean, I see it at every company I've ever worked at. I've seen bots creating accounts, trying to age accounts. It's, um, you know, if, sorry to bust some of your profile stuff, but like I've taken the age of an account out of the factor um, on a lot of the, the risk profiling that I do because it's not res relevant anymore. An old account could be ATO'd and, and go bad. A old account that has no transactions or one transaction could just be sitting dormant, and then all age just doesn't matter. You need to look at the whole the whole profile, and if you move that that prevention processes even to the first touch on the site, you have a more robust picture of what the actual person is like. And I think that like I'm trying even at my own company, and it's it's been successful. I'm I'm, I'm fortunate to be at a company that's really open to my ideas where to move myself into the, 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 the room with those, those security people so they can think about the things that I think about too. And then I can think about the things that they think about because like there's, there's a gap of knowledge there. And if there's not a bridge between them, like they have a piece that I don't have and I have a piece that they don't have. And if we can bring those pieces together, more success. That's a big, long rant for me talking right there. What are your thoughts on that? You made a thousand <laughs> awesome points. I find that the, if I was to reflect back on my operation, I find that there's a huge disconnect between fraud prevention and the merchant team that manages fraud prevention, right? So if it's, if it's an automated service that, that um, if it's an automated service that's being hired to handle these holistic you know, these, these various touch points uh, for the audience. Let's make sure that we, that we speak on that a little bit. So in the e-tailer or retailer e-commerce basic, you know, customer experience journey, right? You have data that's being aggregated or mm -hmm. the potential to aggregate data all the way from the very first touch point, the very first time a, a, a session is created where a user touches down on your website immediately. You got a P address, you might get Mac address, you might have all these different items, right? From there, you move on to the next stage, which is like maybe building a cart. At that point, you know, a merchant could employ uh, behavioral analytics or, or like you were saying about the bots and the cybersecurity aspect of it. See if something is penetrating and building uh, in an automated fashion. Third to that is going to be your account creation. Um, that's when PII comes into play and you can mm -hmm. start leveraging the past information of the session into what goes on with the account creation and see if it's something that has been seen otherwise. And then you have the checkout and then you have social engineering that can be employed against customer service. Customer service affects fulfillment, fulfillment all the way back to the checkout. That's a, that's a, that's all of that. Every single touch point has data associated with it. Now, the problem that I'm identifying is uh, merchants will put a, a vendor in place at one touch point. 
mm-hmm. and say, my fraud is good. They have to pass through this brick wall. Well, yeah. What's a fraudster <laughs> good at? Typing in the right information, right? Putting the right information and in, seeing how fast to type, whatever it might be, depending on what you track. If they bypass that security, you're just as vulnerable on the second thing. And that brings me to the point that you made about knowledge. In my personal opinion, the best fraud prevention strategy starts in-house. It doesn't start with a vendor telling you what to do. It starts in-house. And your people have to manage these systems. Say you have one vendor or two vendors or a vendor that's partnered with another third-party vendor. You have to understand what information is available at the different touch points. And your team in-house needs to understand how to leverage that information and read between the lines. Everything that you said is just spot on. And it just made me giddy to get this out because that's, that's the, the education aspect is just it's missing and, and merchants need to need to step it up and i think that that is something too during the pandemic that like kind of like we all try to do webinars and like attend those but it's just it's not the same as sitting in a room or having a conversation like we're having right now like there, there's value in, in getting together and, and meeting up with people at a conference or at a meetup and just talking fraud. One of the things that I'm super guilty of is even when I'm not at conferences or when I am at conferences at the dinners um, is anytime I'm with another fraud person, that's the entire conversation. <laughs> like, I know I'm not at work. I know I'm not supposed to be working. It's just nothing but, but fraud. But I mean, I, this is like I, like I said, you know, earlier, as I've done a lot of different careers, I've been a buyer for a chain of retail stores, you know, I've sold software, I've done accounting stuff, like I've owned my own skateboard company, like, this is the first time that I've had a, a job where I can talk endlessly about my job without ever getting tired, like ever, like I just, I just love it. It's, it's just fun. <laughs> Isn't it? It's so fun. We deal with hypotheticals, we, we have to justify it through data. How do we aggregate the data? Are there regulations against aggregating that data? What kind, it, it just grows and grows and grows. That I mean, I love it for a hyperactive mind, which I mean, I'm sure I have ADHD at some I point. I think we all do now. Thank you, Steve Jobs for the iPhone and, and causing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just fun to run down the rabbit holes. And, and, and I'll tell you, that's another thing that I really appreciate about, about fraud fighters is the fact that used to be when you're talking to some, like when I was talking about fraud with people from my past, you know, all those years ago, there's one or two or three people that really get the whole rabbit hole. When you start having a conversation with someone like, like the, the Carices and the Brittany Allens and the Jane Lees and the, and the Jordan Harris's like, like hey. when you have these conversations, you could just go for years and just mm-hmm. never stop. There's always a new angle to take. And it's, it's, it is, it's fun. It's exciting. Yeah. I, uh, I just, I actually really can't wait to even get back to the, the next one and just sit down with a group of people. I like the round tables, all of that. So speaking of how we can come up with our endless conversations, let's talk about what you're seeing and I'll talk about what I'm seeing. Um, cause I think one of the things that we're both seeing right now, um, is, well, it never wasn't seen. Um, so the top three trends in the industry, um, let's talk about ATOs because, I'm seeing an uptick in those, but as you probably say, they never went away. So what you, what's your opinion on that? <laughs> so when I see these data sheets come out and these white pages come out that talk about how there's an uptick in this and how we need to be serious about this, let's use ATOs as the, as the center point. I was 
uh, I hate saying these words out loud, but I was, <laughs> I was doing ATOs seven years ago. So it isn't a new thing. The thing that makes it the, the thing that I think identifies it. And I like the word trend. I have to say, I like it is that more people are picking up on how to do it. They're learning where to do it. They're learning how to do it, you know? Um, so in regards to trends, I think every single thing that I've seen come out is, is um, I don't want to say it's new. Uh, it, it might be yeah. rising in, in urgency. I understand that. Um, but these are all things that it's just data being typed into a screen. Yeah, I think like like ATOs, you know, I get, I, it drives me bonkers, but I see like my Facebook got hacked, my Instagram got hacked. Even one of my, my buddies texted me yesterday and was like, oh, my buddy's uh, Instagram got hacked. What do I do? I'm like, promise you she used the same password and email combination across like everything she ever owns. So I'm like, tell her to go in and change everything right now because if her email and her bank isn't already down, it's going down. And right. it's like, you see like, and banks know it, and like they force people to FA now because like they know that like they're just going to share passwords and like your Facebook being hacked is just ATO. It literally is just ATO. And it probably came from some other website or probably with social engineer. You probably typed it in on some little redirect because you got that phishing email. Ugh. It's just I think during the pandemic, it's like we were all home. So we're just like staring at screens all day long. All of these emails were coming out. People were trying to get into accounts because they're trying to make money. Now that we're not spending money, we're not out buying gas at the gas pump. So they can't scrape our card data anymore. It's just a ton of like, it just ATOs were in your face. But yeah. me, like on, on, on like on sites that like, I mean, ATO, I, I won't, ATOs, we have ATOs on my site. Every site on the planet has ATOs. If you don't think you have ATOs, it's because you're, they're really good at ATOing you. You have ATOs. But it's where we saw, especially during the pandemic, a rise in that. And it was just more of an opportunity than it was like, like, a, like in something new. It was just, it was the path of least resistance to yeah. get some sort of value. And, and to your point, I think that a lot of ATOs, well, I know that a lot of ATOs that I committed in the past would be reinforced and, and supported by this ransomware epidemic that took place yeah. I, I haven't seen many reports on it lately but um it was you know it was soaring and with medical information all you have to do i mean i don't want to say all you have to do but but the steps that need to be done you have the information to enforce with a little bit of social engineering on the back end you can gain access to these accounts or redirect those those old accounts to new ones by proving your identity by giving information I think yeah it's very important to to, to consider that because I could take over like basically like somebody's Facebook account that they've had for 10 years, change all the information to me. All of a sudden I got 7,000 friends, you know, and it's in my name. I'm legitimate. I got 10 years of post history, even though it's my name and my face on there all of a sudden, you know, like that's, yeah. that's one thing that, you know, I, at one time, this is not to give too many like actual things away, but um, when we used at an old company, I worked at, we used uh, Facebook connect and the amount of data that you used to get from that on the person was, was pretty remarkable. So we use that pretty heavily in our fraud prevention. Um, you can see like friend count, you know, age of age of the profile and things like that. So if you had like somebody Facebook connect and it didn't have a picture, it had one friend or no friends and the account was 10 years old. Well, that's a shell account. That's just going to be a fraudster, you know, trying to, trying to exploit the system. So it was a lot of factors that would go into that. I mean, we, we don't use that now um, because I think, I think after Cambridge Analytica, I think that Facebook clamped down a little bit on the information, but you used to be able to unlock like those private profiles and all of that stuff back in the day. Man. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, those were good times. Um, yeah, so what else are you seeing in the industry right now? <laughs> I think, well, as I say, it's more of the same. It's just different iterations. We call it different things. Like I, that's one thing that I was surprised when I came over here is, is how 
fraud fighters label and the, the, the stickers, the names that they put on all the, the things that I had done in my past. It's, it's unfortunately, it's more the same because, okay, it's all driven by the technology that's coming out, right? So we have to consider BNPL. When that technology came out in the US, we're, we're seeing a bunch of troubles with that. When we saw that technology and services had to adjust to no contact and social distancing, we saw an uptick in uh, BOPIS, the buy online, pick up and store, the alternative oh, yeah. pickup and all that. Um, now we have crypto emerging. We have um, the online gaming emerging, emerging. Is crypto still emerging though? <laughs> so I know it isn't. I know it isn't emerging, but it's 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 really in our face. I mean, think yeah. about the last time you saw one of those. Who was it? The uh, Matt Damon. Emerging, oh yeah! Right? Did you ever watch that South Park where he's all? My mom lost all her money because Matt Damon told her to buy crypto. <laughs> no, but I'll look it up. That's such a good episode. Uh. That's awesome. Uh, you know, PayPal, you know, in the last year or last year, PayPal, you know, started to, to work with crypto. It became it became mm. more familiar and common. And now that there's more and more and more coming up and then NFTs, I mean, it's all the same thing. It's just something of value that fraudsters are going to see how to get. And how do they go about getting it? Well, then you draw back and you realize that it's just submitted data. And if you're not verifying every touch point, if you're not verifying every engagement, you know, fraudsters are going to find out whether or not you're watching this particular touch point over here, or if you verify this particular set of information. Um, so really all of these new methods, they're just iterations of yeah. the same things that we're, we're, we're empowering. And then the battle between customer satisfaction and merchant security <laughs> is is this wavering you know flowing thing so uh, there's a lot to be worried about so yeah what, what was uh you said on a, a quote that you had on priest's podcast about the balance between you gotta you have to balance your your customer service and your security <laughs> yes yes <laughs> that's funny uh i mean one of the things that, that that i think that for me probably the biggest trend that i think is happening in the industry overall um anybody that's been on literally anything that I've done over the past year has probably heard me talk about it. But what, what I define as abuse, it's a, um, it's a non-criminal version of fraud. So it's finding exploits on the site, ways to make money. That's not like using stolen information. It's just exploiting. So for, for people in, in, in my type of, of business, where it's an e-commerce business that has like rewards for making purchases, um, rewards for, for doing certain activities, it's people trying to hit those things to get more than they should. Uh, right. So rewards code, um, activations, you know, uh, which is, it's been happening for years, but like also if you buy and you get a percentage or you get certain points, uh, just hitting that and then trying to do refunds on against it, um, we, we reward people that, that write positive reviews on our website that are useful. Uh, people try and exploit that by writing their own review and then using bots to create accounts and upvote those a million times, you know. So there has to be limits. And, and it, it comes right back to what you said, balancing your, your customer service and your security, because customer service sees all these, these reviews and these rewards happening. Like, this is so great. We have all this activity. Look at the interaction that we're having. When I'm like, it's one guy. Like, like there's not a lot of activity. We're just writing checks to one guy that has 800 accounts, you know? And, and it's just, this is where like, again, the fraud comes in on the security side because I'm able to finally to get myself in the room and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Look what's happening over here. We need to slow that down. It's not a legitimate. So you got to put like, and I, I've said it before, like you have to put limits on things, but they need to be dynamic limits. Like right. putting a $20 refund limit on across your whole business People are just going to buy the thing that's 1995. You know, right. it needs to be dynamic based on the account, the purchase history, their interaction, 
like all sorts of information about what their actual lifestyle used to be and is on your site. So, yeah, I think that's great. That's, that is a trend that's popping up the policy abuse, because if you consider the fraud team, who's looking to make early on determinations or early uh, determinations against fraud, we're looking at, you know, whether or not the historical data lines up with this user, right? Does it make sense that this person's purchasing this, you know, for transaction analysis and that makes sense. But the problem is for, um, either bots across, you know, bot accounts and all that across, you know, the spectrum or for just dishonest customers, dishonest yeah. consumers who are getting desperate through all this. That's crazy that. is, is this moral gray area that happened during the pandemic. It's like people that like think that they're doing nothing wrong when they're like expecting to keep the product when, when calling for a refund. I think, I mean, it's, it was common in the pandemic. We didn't, they didn't want to ship the stuff back and forth. It could be expensive, but like these people figured that out and they're like, well, you know, I could just order this thing and then I can call up and say, I don't like it. And they'll tell me to keep it and they'll give you the money back. Yeah. And a technically not doing anything illegal. And it's like regular, like people were doing this right. and it's still stealing. Like it's like this weird moral gray area where they think they're like, because it's a billion dollar corporation that it doesn't do any harm, but it does. It does harm and it sucks. And I don't like that behavior and I don't like, so that's why like I've even been shifting away from finding bad people. See, does he like that gender neutral term, bad people and focusing on like the criminal bad people, but finding just bad actors in my ecosystem. That's like this noise that we used to tolerate this noise. But as soon as everything fell during the pandemic that noise rose to the top and then it's staying loud. And I think that that's, that's where we're putting a lot of our energy. And, and I, 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 I can't drive this, like I've said it a million times on other panels that I've done. I can't articulate enough. You are probably losing more money at your company on refund abuse than you are on your fraud right now. Because people, like, you're, like if you look at your refunds, your percentages in your, in your gateway, go look at your payment gateway and look at your refund percentage before pandemic and then during and then after, I bet you that you're seeing sustainable refunds being higher than they were pre-pandemic levels. And I bet you it's full points. We measure our fraud at basis points. Refund increase is being measured in full points. Like you're losing more money. Yeah, absolutely. And they find out that they can do it and they get away with it. And they do it again and again. And they do it again and again. And then in addition to that, you have the people that are out there, you know, the fraud as a service, right? Well, hey, let me instruct you on how to do it. Mm -hmm. I'll get you, I'll put you through the process to get a $2,000 laptop, you pay me $400, yeah. you know? So I, I, sh I spoke too soon when I said it's all the same, because it's not, right? Yeah. Moving out of the fraud, the, the, our umbrella covers a lot of a territory, but there's this, this, this compartment, right, of policy abuse and, and refund abuse and uh, discount abuse and promotion abuse and, and all of these Otherwise, good, good characters, good, good customers who are finding out they can get more than they pay for, right? Yeah. To the detriment of merchants, hundred percent. Wow, yeah, that got me fired up right there. Well, we are um, pretty much at time here on this first uh, initial episode. Um, I know how, how's your guitar playing going these days? So I kind of slowed down. Um, some stressful things happened in in, in my life, but. Yeah. Music is back on the music is back on track. I saw back on the menus, boys. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So uh, it'll be coming out. I'm a metalhead, so yeah. you know it's going to be coming out. It's going to be aggressive. It's going to be it's going to be intense. What about I'm you? A, yeah. So I got them back here. No, I know nobody's going to be able to see this, but uh, I got my new Telecaster there. Yes. Still playing, still playing the Taylor daily though. Um, I am actually 
recording my very first song that I've ever written start to finish uh, on next Saturday. Uh, so we're doing a, a little dry run this Saturday, which is 4th of July weekend. I don't know when this is going to come out, you know, hopefully by the end of today, but maybe Monday, um, but 4th of July weekend. So we're going to do a little dry run. So it's my first time recording a song uh, myself and that I've written start to finish. So I'm going to be playing and singing and all the whole thing. So we'll see. We'll see how it works out. Put a lot on my plate right now these days. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. You got to send it to me when it's done. Okay. I will. And then uh, for the next MRC, we should probably make a song together and then perform it. The MRC band, you know, I know we have, we got drummers, we got bass players out there. Like we got to find the, the MRC band. So anybody listening to this, um, like and subscribe and leave comments <laughs> uh, and put up you know what instrument you play maybe we can get that mrc band together that'd be sick hell yeah well hey it's it's been a pleasure um i want you to do your uh, thing about where people can find you how they can find you um i'll obviously put it in like the notes on the podcast itself but yeah let's let's hear all about it where do we find you uh so email is alexander at dispute defense consulting.com uh my website has a a little two boxes. If you're a merchant, you can click one. If you're a service provider, click the other one. Uh, that's disputedefenseconsulting.com. Um, most communication just happens through LinkedIn. So let's connect everybody and anybody. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being my very first guest. Um, this has been a, a pleasure. Like I, I really like just having fraud conversations like this. I'm sure we're going to have many more conversations offline. Uh, but anytime you got any big news that you want to share with the world, feel free to ping me and we'll get you fired up here on another episode, man. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on your first, man. I, and I wish you lots of luck with this. I hope it takes off and flies. Me too. Believe me. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. Hey, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. <laughs>